I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 20 to 21 today, so um, we'll be flying through uh, these two chapters, but if you would pray with me as we get started. <clears throat> Lord, so thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning and to be um, just looking at your word and being challenged by your scripture again and, uh, and our identity and our calling and, uh, and just the example that we see in Jesus, and I want to just pray that as we go through this text and, and look at um, what you've recorded here for us, that, that you would inspire us and challenge us uh, just to go deeper with you and to seek out what you've called us to do and uh, to do so in the manner of Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so I've got a map. This is exciting. We've got a nice little map here of uh, Israel as it's divided up among the tribes as well as a uh, a listing here of the cities, uh, the cities of refuge, as well as the Levitical cities. Uh, this can be accessed in very much closer detail if you want to zoom in on it through your band app, you know, shameless plug. Um, yeah, uh, so you can check that out. Um, but we're going to be talking about the different cities, Levitical cities and re cities of refuge is what is covered in chapters 20 and 21 of Joshua. So uh, we've seen so far the commissioning of Joshua to lead the people into the land. We've seen the people cross the Jordan. We've seen them defeat Jericho and Ai and the southern kingdoms and the northern kingdoms. Um, and we've seen how the Lord has subdued the entire land before the people of Israel and has given rest to it. Um, and at the conclusion of this chapter 21 uh, is kind of the, the, the closing of this story of Joshua and the people of Israel going into the land and taking over the land um, by the hand of the Lord. And so uh, this map shows us kind of like how things were divided up as inheritances to the people of Israel, um, as well as some cities that are of importance. And we've talked about these cities before in Numbers chapter 35 and a couple other places as God was telling the people before they even got there that these cities should be set aside for a very clear purpose. And so uh, today we're going to be talking about both sort of, the, sort of the reason why these cities are set apart and what we can uh, glean from it. So I'm going to read a couple of passages. The first one is going to be Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. So Joshua 21 to 6 says this, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They, should, oops, they shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. And then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he has struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled." So in this passage, we learn about the cities of refuge, and the purpose of the cities of refuge is pretty plain if you're following along in the text, right? So in the course of life, you're doing life, maybe you're, I don't know, you're plowing a field with your brother, 
and you accidentally let go of the ox, and the ox runs over your brother, and he dies, right? You are the one that let go of the ox. It's your fault that you let go of the ox, and the ox got away and killed your brother. Or, you know, whatever. You're playing whatever sport they play in Israel at the time, and, you know, the bat flings out of your hand and hits the guy in the head and dies. Whatever it is, like whatever unknowing, unintentional death that has come upon your brother, um, you know, the result of you being the person that is responsible for your brother or sister's death is that someone wants to kill you, right? I mean, like, think about the dad or the brother or whoever is going to be the avenger of blood, the next of kin that is going to come and try to, you know, put you to death because you put their relative to death. And so there's this term of avenger of blood and the manslayer that's talked about through here. The manslayer is the person who unintentionally has killed somebody in the land. And just in the course of life, there was no hate in his heart, as you saw at the end of the passage. It's determined that there was no hate in the guy's heart toward this other brother. It just was an accident, an unfortunate series of events where the person was killed, and now someone wants to kill him because he killed someone close to them, right? Like, that's a scenario you could imagine very clearly. And so um, the, there was a provision for this case, of, of happening in the, in the land of Israel. And that provision was the establishment of cities of refuge. And so throughout the land, uh, you can see the list of them in verses 7 to 9, a number of cities were set apart for the people to flee to if they were you know, caught unintentionally killing somebody. And they would go to that city, and they'd go to the elders of that city, the closest one to them, and say, hey, I, I have killed somebody. Like, my whatever, my life, my walking through life and doing life has killed somebody. I did not intend to do so, but someone has died at my hand. And these are the circumstances, right? And he'd, he'd lay out, like, this is how it happened. This is what I was doing. And this is when they died. And he would just tell them the case at the city gate. And the elders then would have the decision to make, whether they believe the guy or whether they don't believe the guy. And if they believe the guy, that there seems to be truly an unintentional uh, case of slaughter, then they will accept him into the city of refuge, and he is given safe refuge there until the death of the high priest at the time. It's a very, like, like it makes sense, right, if you think through it, but it's very, like, detailed way to provide protection to someone that definitely wants to be killed by someone close to them, right? And for kind of a good, like, kind of a, a purpose we can understand. It's your fault that my brother died. And so I'm going to come kill you. I'm going to come take your life. Life for life is very deeply rooted there. And so this protection of, hey, I have no hate toward this person that died in my hand. I did not intend for them to die. God has provided a provision for them to stay alive in that case. It's a pretty powerful uh, thing. And, and so as I was reading through this, it's you know, kind of cool just to okay, why, why does the guy somehow, why is he somehow set free from the city of refuge when the high priest dies, right? There's kind of this weird provision in the end of it. And um, it was, you know, just studying through that, uh, I came across a commentator who was talking about that, and he said this, that um, we don't know specifically what removes the manslayer's guilt. That's the person that unintentionally kills uh, a brother, he was sentenced to a period of exile in the city of refuge, away from his home, and he could not return home until the high priest died. And some have argued that this is some sort of period of amnesty, ushering in a new era, but 
um, the more probable explanation, according to this person, is that the high priest represented the sacrificial system and his death atoned for the sins of the manslayer. No ransom was accepted for a murder or for the manslayer. Only on the occasion of the death, the high priest was the manslayer set free. As another commentator, Greenberg states, the sole personage whose religious cultic importance might endow his death with expiatory value for the people is at large in the high priest. What is it saying? It's saying the high priest is a representative of the people of Israel, and his death is an atonement, right? Every year he celebrates the Day of Atonement, goes in to the Holy of Holies, and makes sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people, all the sins. And he's saying, who covers our sin? Not me, but God. And I, as the representative of the people, am making this sacrifice of the Day of Atonement to recognize that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, but God is our Savior. And so he's saying that the reason the high priest is allowed to let these people out of the cities of refuge is that that's a symbol that this person has died, and we're moving into a new high priest. And so this person can go back to their land, go back to their family that they've been separated from since this unfortunate event occurred. And so um, this commentator goes on to say that the high priest is mentioned being anointed with holy oil in Numbers 35's account of this and supports the position that this is some sort of acceptable sacrifice that was being made or a symbol of the sacrifice. And he says this, which I, again, I think is applicable to us and powerful for us as we think about this. He says, for Christians, the typological association, the association of the death of Jesus Christ, the great high priest whose death atones for our sins, are visible here in this picture. So just as we see in the Old Testament system, the, the high priest dying on behalf of the people and that somehow releasing people that are in bondage, in the same way, that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He's fulfilled it in a permanent sense. His death on the cross pays for all our sin. There are no more days of atonement. The atonement is done in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so uh, this cities of refuge is a powerful thing to think through that, that the high priest somehow represented this forgiving of sins and establishing walking into a new freedom. And so these cities of refuge were put, put throughout, the, town, uh, throughout the, uh, uh, the land so that a safe house could be had for people who unintentionally hurt one of their brothers or, or killed them. Um, pretty powerful. And then, so the second set of cities that we find is in chapter 21, uh, Joshua 21. And um, there's like 45 verses here. I'm only going to read like uh, five of them. Um, verses 4 to 42 are a list of the Levitical city allotments, which, you know, you can see uh, right here, all these cities. There they are. There's, a, there's 48 of them um, in total. And um, just kind of a side note, it's like 4 times 12. And if you're into like numerology... Uh, or whatever. There's some theories that the number four is representative of a room and representative of a space and thus representative of like kingdom. And so this area, this kingdom is made up of the 12 tribes. And so there's 48 priestly cities that are given. Anyway, it's like some, some interesting theories about what the purpose of having 48 different cities is. Um, but these are the verses I'm going to read, uh, Joshua 21, 1 to 3. 
Then the heads of the fathers of the house of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of the Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with the pasture lands for our livestock. So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And so again, you have uh, verses 4 to 42 that demonstrate the the list of cities that is given to the Levitical priests. Um, I'm going to circle back around to that. Uh, a little bit in a, in a little bit, but but just to say that the rest of the um, brothers of Israel were given entire lands, right? And we've talked about how many lands were given and how most of them were, you know, fully occupied and all this, and some were kind of left with some people uh, left in them. But all the lands are given, but the tribe of Levi is not given any lands. All they're given is once the tribes have received their lands, the tribes then give back to the Levites a place to live throughout the land. Um, and so usually when I think about the Levites and the priests, I think, oh, they're all in Jerusalem, and the only place that they are is in Jerusalem. But the reality is that the Levites and the priests are spread out throughout Israel, and their purpose is, yes, to be a part of the sacrificial system in Jerusalem, but it's also to be teachers of the law throughout the land. So they're spread out you know, from top to bottom of the land, teaching the people what their, well, the intention is that they will be teaching the people what the law is and making them understand, you know, what Moses had commanded and what the Lord had commanded through Moses uh, so that they could follow, follow the Lord. Um, okay, so then the Levites are just given these 48 cities. They're given the cities to live in, designated for Levites to live in, and the pasture lands around them to, you know, maintain animals that would be sent down to Jerusalem for, for sacrifice and that kind of thing. So, um, these Levitical city allotments are given throughout, uh, throughout the land, and it's a cool way that the Lord provided for these individuals who don't have a normal profession or normal uh, ability to provide for themselves or their families in, uh, in the land the Lord gave. So then at the end of chapter 21, we find, again, this end cap, this conclusion of uh, the giving of the entire land in, in chapter 21, verses 43 to 45, which says this, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given them all their enemies into their hands." Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. So again, you, we have this emphatic language of, okay, no enemies there and, and, uh, and that um, they, they'd taken over all this land. Um, and we know, as, you know, because we've studied already through this, that it wasn't the Lord's failing that left people remaining in the land. Right? The Lord gave them all the Lord told them he would give them. It was their disobedience that left a number of people in the various spots of the land where they are. Okay? So we saw three or four places in the giving of the land where the people of Israel left, you know, left people in the land. Um, and, but as far as the Lord's side of things, if they would have been obedient, he would have continued to give them the lands that remain. So the Lord fulfills all the promises he's made. 
But the one thing that is definitely true is that the enemies are subdued. No one is coming after them anymore. Uh, once they defeated Jericho and Ai, you had contingents of kings that were gathering together to fight against Israel, to try and take them down before they took over the entire land. And that's not happening anymore. Everyone's kind of conceded to the fact at this point that this is pretty much Israel's land, and we're not going to be coming out to war against them. So that's why it says um, that, that they, had, uh, they had rest from uh, this, this war. <clears throat> um, and they took full uh, possession of the land. One of the powerful things there is that, you know, verse 45, again, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. And these promises were not recent. <laughs> These are old, old promises that have been passed down for a long, long, long time. I mean, the, the promises stem back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, when God was speaking to Abram. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Which again reminds us that the purpose of Israel as they go into the land is not uh, to be a thorn in the nation's side, but rather to be a, a testimony of the powerful hand of God that people would turn and see the Lord and follow the Lord. Uh, and then continuing in uh, Genesis 17, verses 1 to 8, additional promises that were given to Abraham. When Abram was 99 years old, uh, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to the offspring after you. So God gives these promises back to Abraham, 450 years before this time that Joshua finally walks into the land and takes it and settles it and distributes all the cities, distributes all the pieces of uh, land to the tribes. These promises that God made hundreds of years before have now come fulfilled here in Joshua's time. Abraham, who had, you know, just Isaac and Ishmael. Right, and then a handful of sons after that. He he didn't have he didn't see this uh, this come to fruition that the generations or multitudes were before him. He didn't have like a ton of children that he got to see. He didn't have a nation established that he got to see. His generations that came after him ended up going into slavery for four hundred years before they were brought out to be established as a nation. We know all too well, that God's timetable is not our timetable, but his promises are sure, and we can count on them um, all of our life. So chapters 20 and 21 um, kind of wrap up the, 
giving of the land of Israel. And there's a few things that I want us to go with as we, uh, we kind of fast forward and try to apply this to our lives today. Uh, so the first is this. I'm a Levite, like Blake. Blake is, a well, part of Blake is a Levite because I'm bivocational, not totally vocational. So I'm a Levite. You guys have heard me say this at various times, but as we're thinking about leadership in, you know, fast forward to church versus looking back at Israel and the priesthood and what's kind of set up there, I'm a Levite, not a priest. And, and often in church culture, we think of pastor as priest. That's the, the equation that we have in our heads is, well, pastor's priest, and I'm just the layperson, you know, whatever that is, which is like a weird word that we probably should get rid of. Um, and so is pastor. But anyway, the whole thing. Um, so, so I'm a Levite more than I am a priest in my position as a vocational minister. Um, you've heard me talk about, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share a slide with you. You've seen it before, and it looks complicated and scary, but it's just how I see and understand how the activities of church work together and flow together uh, to see. Yeah, is this going? Okay. All right. So this is, this is my slide. Okay. This is, this is church. In my head, this is what church looks like. Okay. We have worship services. Here we are, the ones of us that are well. Sorry, everybody. Um, we have community groups, we have missional outreaches. These things are working together all the time in our church. Out of that flows some relational discipleship. You know, if we do something missional, like for instance, the coffee shop, we send people to other churches all the time. And so we're excited about that opportunity to point people in the direction of other churches that are faithful to the word. Um, and so you, you may have seen this before. This is kind of how I envision church working together. Um, and so in the middle of that is the authority of the church, which is, you know, Jesus and membership, elders, staff, etc. Okay, that's functioning in the middle of it. That's what's leading us as a little, you know, local body of Christ. And so if you just take that part out and just let's look at this for a second, okay? Christ is the head of the church. Okay, not, not, an, not an elder, not a staff. It's not like elders and staff direct the members and Jesus goes straight to the elders and the elders direct the members. No, no, Jesus is speaking to us as a body. He's speaking to the membership, and he's leading the entire membership. And among that membership of people, there are people who are called to either serve in a staff role or serve as an, in an elder position of some kind, and we think that's a position in which you're able to teach and lead and shepherd, uh, shepherd people in the membership, okay? And so we don't look as elders as some sort of thing that you're trying to achieve, you're not trying to achieve some status of elder like you would achieve CEO in a company, okay? It's not a hierarchy like that. It's actually a servitude. You're going downward in the, in the, in the scheme of things and serving the whole rather than, uh, you know, being above the whole in some way. So we have to get that picture, you know, twisted away from what we understand in the world. Um, but when you think about, you know, Comparing this to the Old Testament system and what we've just kind of studied about Levites and priests and whatever, this is kind of how it functions, right? Uh, the high priest is representative to the entire people. When he goes in on the Day of Atonement, he's the only one set aside to go in at the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for the people on behalf of the people, not just for himself. 
He's not going there as some privileged position that he has you know, seen and only he gets to see God. No, he is representative of the people. The purest of the pure in terms of ritual purity, he has been set aside to be representative of the entire people. He's not above them. He is leading them, a substitute for them. And so he leads a, a priesthood um, and Levites that serve the priesthood. The Levites' purpose, their whole role, is to provide for all the logistics of the priesthood. They raise the cattle, okay? They, uh, they clean, the, clean the vestments. They clean, like they're, they're serving the priesthood. They're making sure that the priesthood can do all their duties. That's their whole goal. The Levites' goal is to serve the priesthood that the priesthood could serve the people. And the high priest ultimately could then go in, Day of Atonement, and represent the people of, uh, of God before the Lord and show the people this picture of God's holiness and his beauty and his forgiveness and his mercy. And so if you think of Jesus, as Hebrews talks about, as the great high priest, this, this switches over into the church as well. And so, so I consider myself as a vocational minister, not as some priest that's above anybody, but rather as a Levite. I'm one that's serving the priesthood. My, my role as a Levite in my Levite function is to serve the priesthood. So, um, you know, similar to the Levites that we just read about, the cities that are set aside for them, any vocational minister has forsaken some opportunity to earn a living in the world, but rather be dependent in some form on his brothers and sisters in Christ for the Lord's provision. Look, this has totally come full circle, guys. We're talking about tithing. <laughs> Not only are we small this morning with just the littles and a couple other folks, but we're also talking about tithing. So this is so fun. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> sorry, I wasn't really going to press into tithing. Um, but the truth is, a Levite has forsaken some sort of role in the world and is now dependent on his brothers and sisters in Christ to provide in some way for his living, um, for the Lord's provision for him. And so this is exactly what was happening for the people of Israel when they received the land. The Levites had no inheritance, but out of their brother's inheritance, they received provision. They were given cities and pasture land, not of their own, but to be used by them within the cities of their brothers. That would be a pretty humbling thing. I don't own this territory. I'm just here by, you know, the, the giving, the gift of my brother in which I live. Uh, the gift of Manasseh, the gift of Simeon, the gift of, I'm in Simeon's land and he's given me this city. It's not my land. So then, obviously, this leads us to the question, if vocational ministers are Levites and not priests, which is, you know, different than what we often say it, then who are the priests but every believer that's in Jesus? So the second thing is this, I'm a Levite, right? But we are priests. You're a priest, and you're a priest, and you're a priest. We're, we're priests, okay? And, and God talks about us this way in the New Testament. We are all priests and ministers of a new covenant. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21, which is on the back of our wonderful new shirts for the coffee shop, so good. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 says this, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone was in 
anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Who did he give the ministry of reconciliation? Just vocational ministers? No, he gave to the church, the entire church, a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, that is, the entire church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As a Levite, my whole role is to make sure you as priests and myself as a priest are equipped with the word of God to be a minister of reconciliation wherever God calls me, to be an ambassador of Christ wherever he may lead us as people. I'm not a priest in my vocational ministry role. I'm a Levite. I'm serving the priesthood. Just as the Levites served the priesthood in the Old Testament, so I am serving the priesthood to make sure you are equipped to go out and be ministers of reconciliation, sharing this message that once we had sin and in Christ we are a new creation, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This, by the way, is why I give myself the title of lead minister. I intentionally chose that, right? I'm not senior pastor. I'm not senior minister. I'm lead minister because I'm leading us all in ministry, right? We're all ministers of reconciliation. I just happen to be given the role as a Levite to help you and lead you into that ministry. So we're all ministers of reconciliation. And also, we're a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying, a stone, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has set us apart, church, the whole church, as a holy priesthood. We are priests and ministers of reconciliation, not just pastors that are preaching from a pulpit, but all of us as people of God have become His people who have received mercy when we once did not receive mercy and have been entrusted with this message to share with all the world. No one wants to talk to a pastor. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're on an airplane, okay, and someone asks you your profession, you're like, ah, oh, pastor, they're like, 
I'm putting on my headphones. Yo, bye, you know? But if you're a watchmaker on the, on the airplane, right, and someone says, what'd you do for a living? I'm a watchmaker. Wow, I love Rolex. Blah, 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 blah. All the conversation goes. How'd you get into that, right? Like, this is how God works. He uses us where we are with our interests to make ways into people's lives and share with them the love of Jesus. Why am I doing what I do? Because I love my Lord. You didn't expect that because you thought I wasn't a pastor. But turns out, I'm a minister of reconciliation and a holy priesthood. And so that's the power of this passage is that I'm the Levite here. I'm just trying to equip in this moment, right? I'm just trying to build you up as a priesthood so that when you go out into this week, you know that you are an ambassador of Christ, carrying the message of reconciliation to the world God has put around you. And finally, from this passage, we see that um, God fulfills... All his promises. Let's see if I lost my connection here. Only went so far. Yep. I cannot advance the slide. <laughs> uh, we'll go to the backup. There you go. Yeah. So I'm a Levite. Levite. We are priests. And God fulfills all his promises. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, and in him that's talking about Jesus Christ. That is why through, it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let's see if that, is that advancing? Nah, we, we've just lost it. It's okay. We'll move on. Um, Christ is the fulfillment of everything that we have seen. He is the answer to all of God's promises. Just as the land became an answer to God's promise 400 years before it, and physically they received this land, for us as ministers of reconciliation, every promise of God becomes fulfilled in Jesus. We've studied a lot of the Old Testament over the past few years, and what we should know and take away from this is that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that God has given. He's the perfect version of every leader that we have studied and walked through in the scripture. He's a better Adam. He's a better Noah. He's a better Abraham. He's a better Jacob. He's a better Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. He is better than all of these that have come before him and fulfills everything that God was doing in them before. He's the answer to every promise and his death has paid for all of our sin. As I was reflecting on this in this passage, I was challenged by the fact that um, here we're studying about Jesus as the high priest and his death, right, substitutes for us. He takes on our guilt. And because of his death, we are no longer guilty or held guilty or could be held guilty by anybody, right? The truth is we are like the manslayer. We have offended. We have sinned. We have broken and we are on the run, before we know Jesus, we are on the run from the avenger of blood. The wages of sin is death. Our only hope before Christ is nothing. It's, death is chasing us. The avenger of blood is chasing us. The penalty of sin has chased us to a city of refuge. And how amazing is it that once we have come into this city of refuge, you would think sometimes you get to the city of refuge, if I'm going to absolve my debt, I'm going to have to pay somebody, I'm going to do something. But what we find when we come to the city of refuge in our time is that 
when we've gotten there, running from our sin, the great high priest has already died for our sin, and he set us free. How great a truth that the sin we once ran from, that was chasing us and shaming us and guilting us and pouring onto us all that we, you know, it says we deserve. Jesus says, come to me. And as soon as you get to this city of refuge, he says, guess what? It's already finished. It's done. The debt is paid. You are made whole. You are made righteous. My life for your life. You once were dead, and now you're alive in Christ. I was sinned for you, and now you have become the righteousness of God. How powerful, because it is true. I mean, you, could, you can now imagine being the manslayer, right? You've offended God. I've offended God, and that's who I was before I knew Christ. I was running from what actual penalty I deserve, which is death. And when I came to the city of refuge, what I found was not a religious structure that I had to climb in order to achieve some sort of holiness, but rather grace. It is finished. It is done. It is good news. The great high priest has died on your behalf, and he's called you to go forward into this world to be an ambassador of, uh, of Christ to be a minister of reconciliation with this message of reconciliation that he's given to the world. That if you trust in Jesus and not in the ways of this world, you will be saved. And no longer will the avenger of blood come and chase after you, but rather you will be freed from your sin and brokenness and walk in a newness of life. The old has gone away, and behold, a new life has come in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity to study your word and to be challenged by it, encouraged by it, built up by the truth of your gospel. We can never hear it enough, Lord, um, how good you've been to us. You've given us that which we don't deserve over and over and over again. May we embrace our role in this world, in this kingdom that you've called us to be a part of. May we stop looking uh, to professional ministers to do our job. We are all priests. And so God, as you've called us to be out in this world, Lord, I pray we would see our vocations as holy ones, as ones you've called us to do, that we might share this love that you've given us in Christ Jesus. That Yeah, once I was an offense to God, running against his law, running against his best for me, and now I have found freedom in Christ Jesus who has made me a better me. He's made me who I've been created to be. He lets me walk in the passions and, and loves and desires that he's given me under his holiness. And so, God, help us uh, to see the ways in which you've called us to be ministers of reconciliation to our world. Help us boldly uh, share this message of reconciliation and be ambassadors of Christ. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus. We thank you for his good news that he's come and died on our behalf, that him who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.